This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares, and with me today is my new co-host, Laith Calaf. Hello. So I'm delighted to be joined by one of AJ Bell's pension experts, Rachel Vey. So, Laith, welcome to the podcast full-time. So, what are we going to be talking about this week? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Uh, This week, we're looking at one of the UK's biggest and most well-known funds, Fundsmith Equity, celebrating its 10-year anniversary next week. Rachel's going to be talking to us about avoiding pension scams, uh, and we've also got an interview with the chairman of the Murray Income Trust, ahead of its merger with Perpetual Income and Growth Trust. And finally, I'm going to be looking at ethical funds. That's ahead of Good Money Week, which is kicking off on that uh, uh, this, sa- this coming Saturday. But before we get to all that, let's um, let's take a look at the markets. It feels like it's been a bit, a bit of a mixed week, Dan. At m- macro level, we've obviously had you know the Brexit trade talks going on. They've been running a bit a bit hot and cold. It looks like is that having any effect on markets? Yeah, I mean we've had um, you know, we're recording this on the Wednesday, twenty first of October, and we've had um, quite a strong uh, kick up in the in the pound versus the dollar. So this is um, having quite a big effect on equity markets. So the the EU chief. Brexit negotiator uh, Michelle Barnier has come, commented that a, a deal with the UK could still be in reach. I mean, it feels like a bit of a game of bluff between the UK and the EU. Um, no real sort of uh, obvious progress recently, but it's it's so now you know the markets are taking this comment from the EU that there could be deals. So that's that's pushed up the pound. Um, obviously, that's had a, that's weighed on the FTSE 100 because about three quarters of its constituents earn in foreign currencies and, and not the pound. So when you translate that back into the pound, which is the, the currency of their share price, it's not as, it's not favourable. Um, but the FTSE 250 is only got about um, you know, a, lot, a lot less foreign earnings. So about 40% of this index earns in uh, in the pound. So they'll benefit. So that, that there's a, a marked difference between the performance of the two sort of UK indices. So, so really, I, I think what people sort of are now... Having looked at thinking, you know, if we do get a trade deal, what does this mean for investments? And it certainly would suggest um, that potentially people might reappraise UK equities. They've been out of favour for ages. Um, could this be the trigger to to get foreign investors looking at the market again? But if we don't get a trade deal, you know, it could be it could be even worse for for you know, particularly UK domestic stocks. Um, and it actually could push up the FTSE 100 and say that a weaker pound. Would benefit all those overseas earners, but you know it's it, it, take it on a day by day basis that markets are moving all over the place at the moment. And so, if we look at some of the other news that's been catching my eye over the last week, quite a few companies again beating expectations. So we had Reckitt, Ben Kaiser, and Procter and Gamble, um, sort of providers of um, essential products that we'd need, whether we're in a good or bad economic environments and it's, it's really quite interesting that one might have thought that lots of people during the initial phase of lockdown would stockpile um, sort of cleaning products and, and medicines and perhaps don't really need them now because they, they've still got plenty at home but it doesn't really appear to be the case the only sort of downside on wreck it was some of the over-counter the med- over-the-counter medicine was perhaps still suffering from that um 
that people still have plenty at home. But otherwise, you know, Reckitt's convinced that we're we're in sort of this new way of living where everyone's paying a lot more attention to sort of cleaning products and, and staying healthy. So so they've enjoyed some earnings upgrades and Nestle has just had the same thing as well. Um, it's saying food, drink and pet food sales um, going up, you know, doing much better than expected. So so really, I mean, it's, you know, th- these, these stocks are giving out good news. Um, and I saw some stats that 86% of the companies in the US that have so far reported their Q3 earnings have actually beaten estimates, but actually the share price has not been reacting that well. And I wonder it's because US stocks are so expensive. They, they trade on such high ratings that there just isn't the type of news that um, that's really, really taking the market by surprise. Um, it's yeah, just it's- not just not enough to push them is it so yeah it's it's interesting what you're saying about uh, nestle and record there because i mean actually they're the kind of companies that have done quite well haven't they they're those kind of solid boring boring stocks um that did well after the financial crisis because basically a lot of a lot of people have been pushed out of bonds they were called bond proxies at the time i seem to remember um so people kind of just looking for companies that are solid stable earnings uh, and could provide some growth in a in a kind of otherwise pretty bleak economic environment and i guess wreck it and unless they kind of tick that box yeah i mean if you look at some of the the other sort of u.s companies that have been reporting in, in recent days we've had netflix um so it, it shares took a bit of a bit of a hit because um it certainly did not live up to expectations i mean this is a you know during the start of lockdown i, I think everyone realized that we stuck at home for ages and and sort of streaming films and tv on your computer was deemed to be sort of the number one activity so um a sense if you hadn't subscribed to netflix during the initial stages of lockdown it's hard to imagine there's there's anyone left who hasn't done it so i mean rachel are you are you a netflix fan are you are you sort of glued to the screen watching um whatever the sort of the, the big box sets of coming out um no i'm not actually i haven't watched that much television recently and um, I'm not entirely sure why. The only thing we really watch on Netflix is um, Doctor Who. So we're working our way through the back catalogue <laughs> of Doctor Who um, with, the, uh, with the two smaller kids. I watched it originally the first time round with the two older stepchildren and now we're watching it with um, our smaller kids who are hiding behind the sofa in true Doctor Who fashion. So I'm yeah. enjoying that. I'm afraid I don't tend to watch an awful lot else on it. Oh, I, I always sort of chuckle when I talk to my kids about how when I was young, you know, we had to just watch whatever was on sort of the, the, the sort of the four basic channels that existed. And you didn't have this luxury of being able to sort of trigger whatever you want on demand, you know, and they've got such an easy life now. But, you know, Netflix is a, is a curious one. People were expecting, um, through all, analysts were expecting 3.6 million additional subscribers during Q3. Netflix had actually guided for 2.5 million, but actually it only delivered 2.2 million. So it was a bit of an embarrassment, really. But I mean, I guess 2.2 million extra subscribers is a huge amount of people. Um, but you know, this stock has had very high expectations, and and if it doesn't do, you know, be clear that hurdle um you know the shares get punished really i mean it's it's you know you've got the return of sports coming so there's this sort of competition there um you could argue that the sort of the, the content that they've had recently has been pretty poor um and interestingly i see in the us that they've stopped the free trial um of netflix they obviously feel quite confident they don't need to sort of lure people in that way so um but yeah i mean later you are you a netflix fan 
I've actually just cancelled my my Netflix subscription uh, as it happened. I just I've, I've I had too many things on the go, so I had Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Now TV as well. I got I got kind of suckered into Now by Succession. I wanted to to watch that, and I suddenly realised I've got all three of these streaming services, and I probably use one and a half of them. So yes. <laughs> Netflix, Netflix was the one that was, that's was gone, and and the reason why is I haven't really been through Now. I've been through Netflix, but also, and this is kind of a sneaky one for Amazon, is my Amazon Prime. I probably watch less on the Amazon Prime streaming service, but because I've got the delivery as well, I'm not going to get rid of it. It's kind of like a banker. So it's kind of a a dual service, really. So they've been quite clever in that way and kind of getting the kind of, you know, the streaming business aligned with that delivery business as well. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got. Disney Plus sitting around, it's you know, just too many. There are too many, aren't there? Just You just don't need all of them. All yeah, that's the problem. It's becoming a more a more fragmented market as well, isn't it? Because I think all the old media players are kind of waking up to the fact that Netflix has stolen a bit of a march on them and they're now all trying to, to replicate what Netflix is doing. So for, for the consumer, it kind of ends, ends up that you have to have you know, probably 10 different descriptions. Whereas like you said, Dan, back in the old days, it was really simple, you know, kind of channels one to four, and then a bit later on, there was a five, wasn't it? And even that was quite confusing. Yes. <laughs> so just on, on some of the other stocks I've seen. So we've got um, Trainline joined the UK stock market in June 2019. And and its chief executive, Claire Gilmartin, is now stepping down. She's, she's, she's leaving for family reasons. But I wonder whether um, sometimes companies use that excuse for uh, it makes it sound nice that they're leaving on good terms. But you know, clearly, if you're running a business whose revenue is dependent on selling coach and train tickets, I imagine at the moment in the current environment, it's going to be incredibly hard to to make any money. So it's um, this, this person caused a bit of a stir. So when the company um, joined the stock market, she sold £16 million of shares at the, the stock market flotation. And then actually more recently, she sold another £3 million, which, I mean, a lot shareholders or investors quite often look for company directors um, to see what they're doing. So when, when someone buys shares, it sends a really strong signal. But um, when they're sort of cashing in, taking money off the table and not actually investing more of their own sort of money in the business, you sort of wonder what's their commitment to to staying there. So so she's off and she's going to be replaced by Jodie Ford, who used to run Photo Box and has also used to work at to eBay. So um, yeah, I imagine Trainline's not not the not the easiest business to run at the moment. So just just finally on the sort of the news. So Rachel actually um, I'm glad you're on the podcast as our one of our pension experts. I noticed that the lifetime allowance is going to be changing. Can you give us the sort of the overview of what, what's going to be happening? Yes, um, the lifetime allowance we found out um, this morning is going to go up um, from April next year, and it's going up from one million seventy-three thousand one hundred to one million seventy-eight thousand nine hundred. So it's just edging up slightly. Um, now that's our best guess at what the increase is going to be. Um, for the last, I think, four years, the uh, the lifetime allowance has increased. Um, each year in line with inflation, with CPI. And it's the CPI, it's the CPI that's been announced this morning for September. Um, but every single time the government's done this calculation, they've done it slightly differently and rounded in a slightly different way. 
So that's our best guess of what it's going to be, but we're going to have to wait until um, at the start of next year to find out for definite. But the, the lifetime allowance is, is the amount that you can take out of the pension tax free over your lifetime. Um, and a quarter of that's going to be um, as a tax free lump sum. So even though we're only talking about a slight increase in it, it does mean that someone or most people are going to be able to take out an additional £1,450 in tax-free cash. Um, so I imagine this this is good news for people, isn't it? Any, any sort of increase in the... Yes, it, it, it is. Um, it's tested every time you take any money out of a pension. So you, you go into drawdown or you take a tax-free lump sum or you um, um, you buy an annuity, but it's also tested when you turn age 75 and on a, on a few other occasions. Um, and it started off when it was introduced the lifetime allowance at 1.5 million, and then it rose to 1.8 million about nine years ago. But since then it's been, it, we saw it drastically reduced. It really fell off a cliff. It went right way back down um, to 1 million pounds. So the deal was it went all the way back down to a million, when you compare it to what it was at 1.8 is, you know, it's a big reduction. But the deal was that it would increase every single year by just a small amount, you know, 1,078,900 pounds sounds like an enormous amount of money. It sounds, you know, it's a game show highs. But in reality, it's not really going to buy you that much retirement income. If you have a healthy 65 year old, it would buy you a single life annuity um, paying less than £28,000 if you took your tax-free cash entitlement as well. So it gets you a decent income, but it's below the average salary in the UK. Yeah. So uh, on to ESG investing. This is very heavily in the spotlight right now as climate change has risen up the global agenda. There's a bigger focus on how companies are making their money um, and, and and also making sure it's not in a way that damages the environment. So, so Leith, I know you've been looking at ethical funds available on the market. So what have you found? And uh, I was quite wanting to know how well they've done compared to perhaps to the, to the sort of broader market. Mm, well, we've got um, Good Money Week um, kicking off on Saturday. That's basically a week celebrating um, ethical, responsible, sustainable investing, you know, however you want to, re to, to refer to it. Um, uh, and actually, at the moment, a, a record amount of money is being put into into ethical funds. Um, so these are investments which, basically, you know, some of them screen out the kind of worst um, ESG transgressors on on the market. Uh, some of them actually invest in in companies which are making, you know, kind of positive contributions to things like health or society or or the environment. Um, if we look at how much has gone in this year, it's it's almost four billion pounds so far, um, and that compares with three point two billion last year. Bearing in mind that we had the full year last year, so we haven't quite finished twenty twenties yet, um, and and that's ten times as much as was going in around ten years ago. So there does seem to finally be some kind of pickup in interest amongst um, investors um, on 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 this front. Um, there's still there's still quite a lot of road to go though because if you look at the total amount of assets that are basically invested in ethical funds, it's still under three percent of of the total. So um, you know we're in a situation where 
you know, the it, it looks like we're finally getting that kind of kickstart for, for ethical funds, whether that's a result of, you know, the pandemic, you know, the the increased attention on climate change, you know, David Attenborough doing, you know, uh, do- documentaries on, we've already mentioned it, Netflix, all that kind of thing adds in, I think, and people are starting to wake up and realise that they can actually do something with their investments as well that can help, um, you know, kind of on issues of climate change, the environment, society, etc. So what's what, I mean, there's quite a few different funds on the market now that sort of uh, address this space is if you've got an idea of like how they performed and perhaps so who is the best performer on the market yeah well i mean there's you know there's, like you say there's a range of different funds and as with any any funds that you're choosing you know we can talk about different areas like ethical you can talk about the areas like global income there's always a range of different uh, uh, of different performances with any kind of fund group because of, obviously you get funds go through good periods and bad periods. You get some fund managers that are better than others. You have passive and active approaches. So there's lots of different reasons why you have that. Uh, I mean, if you look at the the UK market, the average UK ethical fund over the last 10 years has just about doubled your money. So £1,000 invested 10 years ago, that would be worth around two thousand pounds now which compares pretty favorably with the FTSE all share which would have given you around a one thousand six hundred pounds now there's you know there's a reason for that as well as the kind of you know good 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 management of the fund managers it's also because if you are investing in um, an ethical fund, then you're you're less likely to be invested in the big blue chips in the market. So if you think about the kind of things that ethical funds might exclude from their portfolios, you know, it's things like oil and gas, it's things like mining, it's things, um, you know, like tobacco, um, which are all kind of big blue chip type um, type companies. Um, and the, the blue chips have actually been the laggards of the market over the last 10 years, as I think we were discussing a little bit last, last week. It's the mid caps and the small caps that have really driven the market. So there's been a bit of a tailwind for ethical funds in the UK in that respect, um, but also they've done a good job. And there's quite a few funds that have you know, provide, provided some you know, absolutely stonking performance, really, you know, the best performing fund um, in the market, pretty much trebling, trebling your money over 10 years. The worst performing, it does have to be said, um, returning you just forty percent, so that again gives you some just kind of idea of the kind of differential that you can get from doing a little bit of fund selection, which is not just true for for ethical funds, but it's true of funds generally. Yeah, well, that's quite interesting to show that it, it's um, it's not just a case of chucking your money in this space if it's hot. You know, it's it's still forty percent versus um, you know considerably more from the from the best performers is, is quite a wide gap. So obviously, yeah. it does, does rely on. Um, you know, if you're using an active fund, the fund manager's stock picking skills. So, yeah, that's right. And I think um, you know, investors in this area are now getting more and more funds available to them. So, you know, it may may well have been the case actually, kind of, you know, back in you know ten years ago or more, that if you were investing in these kind of funds, you probably would just have to plump for whatever was available to you because there wasn't that much. But now there is actually quite a, a lot of funds available. There's been a glut of fund launches in recent years. You probably need a little while for them to kind of build up a track record um, before you can, you know, actually see how, how they're doing. But it does mean that in in the in the coming years, I think investors can be a bit more picky about um, the ethical funds uh, that they're investing in. Yeah, and I'm sure product launches will, will be 
much more specific in terms of the, why, where they're targeting the market rather than this sort of broad approach perhaps that we've seen to date. That's right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, there are lots of ethical funds which are coming to the market, which are kind of targeting, um, you know, specific areas. Um, you know, we've had um, a lot of funds which um, focus on um, the environment, renewable energy, um, you know, Legal in General recently launched a, a fund called the Girl Fund. Uh, which was focused on gender diversity in corporate boardrooms. So you can probably expect to see, as well as the kind of broader ethical funds um, that that we've seen in the past, kind of you know more more niche targeted pro- products which will appeal to some investors as well. Yeah, I mean it's a fascinating area, and we, we you know we do talk about it a lot on the on the podcast, but um, we actually get lots of people. Um, asking us about this area as well. So we'll, we'll, we'll continue to sort of look at this space. And again, if you've got any um, anything particularly you want us to discuss or, or research on this area, just drop us a line at podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Right. Now it's time to talk about one of the biggest funds uh, in the UK. £21 billion is a mega fund. It's the Fundsmith Equity. Um, it's coming up to its 10-year anniversary uh, next week, 1st of November. Makes me feel quite old because I remember it launching. <laughs> um, Dan, uh, it's been, I mean, it's been one of the most successful funds in the UK, both in terms of uh, its performance and uh, and its pop- popularity. So how has it done that, Dan? What's what's the Fundsmith secret sauce? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean the performance has been spectacular. So normally you get, um, you quite often get a fund that everyone's talking about, say, for a couple of years, it's done well, but then it sort of perhaps does, it, it, it struggles to sustain that um, superior track record. But, you know, Fundsmith has, has done it. So for since it launched November 2010, it's increased in value by just over 440%. So if you'd put £5,000 in um, at launch, that money would now be worth just over £27,000. I mean, this is not brilliant. Bad. So, not bad yeah. at all. So if you compare that to the MSCI World Index, which is just a very broad representation of stocks around the world, that's up nearly 200%. So you would have more than doubled um, your returns by going with Fundsmith Equity. So this is, you know, it's, it's fantastic. It, 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 and it's, it's, you know, it helps to, um, you know, it flies the flag for active fund management. It shows that when you have someone who is picking the right stocks and they do it well, that you can deliver very, very significant outperformance versus the broader market. So it looks for high quality companies. It says it doesn't overpay for them and it tries to hold them for a long time. So uh, you, you don't really get too much trading costs in there. So it's essentially, it's very simple to understand it backs winners and it really focuses on quality. And, and one of the reasons why it's done so well um, is it's because it's avoided a lot of the rubbish. You know, it's, it's a funny thing to say that a lot of people don't ever think about investing that way, but it's about avoiding the bad stuff as well as picking the right stuff is a, you know one of the keys of investment success. So I think it, it's, it's when it launched, it was about 56%. Um, allocated to stocks on the US market. And that, that sort of crept up to 68% now. But the, the real big change, in my view, is that it's gone from having 5% of its um, money in 
tech when it launched 10 years ago to now having 29% in tech. So it's a huge, huge shift there. Of course, tech's been a brilliant place to have your money. So um, again, another sort of tailwind for its performance. Yeah, now, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, as you say, kind of Terry Smith had that long-term buy and hold approach. So he obviously still thinks that tech is quite a long-term um, good, good buy, despite kind of what we've been saying about kind of, you know, Netflix and, um, you know, obviously kind of tech tech stocks being so so highly valued at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not it's it's quite probably quite important to stress that Fundsmith isn't um, your perfect child. It's you know it's sitting on nearly twenty two billion pounds worth of assets, but hasn't lowered its management fee. And I think this is a big um, negative in the view of many investors that the bigger you get the more assets that you're managing theoretically um, you should be economies of scale so you should make it cheaper for investors to be owning this but it hasn't changed but i think because fundsmith's done so well people perhaps haven't pushed it hard enough on this topic of fees Um, but imagine if things weren't going so well it would be under a lot more pressure to perhaps to, to bring those fees down um, but it's quite, you know, I, I think it's it's done superb stuff. So obviously, you've picked the right companies. It's um, it's picked companies where earnings are growing. This earnings growth has dried, sh- uh, sort of driven share price growth. Um, so that's helped to to boost the portfolio. But also, and perhaps underappreciated, is that um, investors have been willing to pay a much higher price a sort of higher earnings multiple for these successful companies so um let's say a stock that might have traded on uh, 15 times earnings well if it keeps doing well investors might be prepared to pay 30 times earnings so this uh, sort of increase in the the earnings multiple has also pushed up um the price at which you know people would be happy to own so that's also benefiting fundsmith as well so Unfortunately, if markets do turn and investors are less willing to pay very high ratings for stocks, then you know, theoretically, Fundsmith could suffer. But um, it's just something something to think about. Uh, yeah. So I think, I, people, I think people have been saying that for quite a long time, though, haven't they? Because I mean, it's, it's always you know it's, it's it's the case that that kind of company has been in in vogue for for a long time. You're kind of compounding growth company that. You know, has has you know quality finances, and you could. I mean, you could have made the same argument five years ago about you know, kind of the, the, those companies and, and the U.S. market as well. Um, and you know, the question is how, how how long are you kind of willing to be be, be wrong for? Eventually, you'll you'll you might well be proved right, but what returns have you given up on the meantime? I think. Yeah. So I, I remember five years ago, Terry Smith. Um, He's the fund manager and also sort of is the founder of the asset management business fundsmith as well. He, he was talking about sticking to your guns and just ignoring popular opinion and also ignoring people who don't like the companies that you've got. Because he said that fundsmith used to be criticized quite a lot for owning Microsoft. Lots of people thought that this wasn't a great business. And as he said, in a letter that was issued at the fifth anniversary, he was saying that there was one investor who sort of was threatening to ask difficult questions uh, about why Fundsmith owned Microsoft when it held its annual shareholder meeting, um, it said like it basically, if, if you still hold stock by the time of that meeting, I'm going to be I'm going to get difficult. But um, you know, it didn't. Turns out it didn't ask those questions, and today it's still there. And actually, Microsoft has been a huge contributor to the this amazing performance. 
Yeah, probably don't want to pick a fight with Terry Smith because he's quite into his boxing as well. <laughs> yes, that's, yeah. That's yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. So I find it quite interesting that his investment approach is based on Warren Buffett. He likes boxing in his spare time. Warren Buffett likes playing the ukulele. So I think you've got a slight, <laughs> slight mismatch in personality types there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So, so obviously the success of Fundsmith Equity Fund has led um, Terry Smith to to see what what other products can he launch. So we've had the the mid cap investment trust Smithson launched a couple of years ago, and that's you know, so far they seem to be doing quite well. Um, but he also launched the Fundsmith Emerging Equity. Trust, um, and it within that a lot of the companies seem to be the sort of the foreign subsidiaries of big household names. So you, you might find like a, a uh, so an Asian subsidiary of Unilever in there and stuff. But the, the, the performance has not been very good at all. Um, and what's quite interesting here is you know the Fundsmith motto is buy good companies, don't overpay, and do nothing. But with with the Emerging Equities Trust. There is a criticism that perhaps they might have overpaid to own sort of these foreign subsidiaries companies uh, of all the household names. And they certainly have not been doing nothing. There's loads of portfolio changes over the years. But, um, you know, there's I'm told that there's a new plan in place. They've got a, they, they think they know what they're going to be doing um, and hoping to get the performance back on track. But, you know, as, as Fundsmith as a asset management business coming out from from nowhere 10 years ago um to today you know you you just cannot argue really with the overall success you know it's, it, it's been really really important for um you know many people and, and you know fundsmith equity is held in so many people's pensions um a lot of people relying on it so I mean, at the point at which it, it starts to not deliver the superior performance i think there'll be lots of people not very happy but for now I think for its 10-year anniversary, there'll be loads of people ready to, to give balloons and presents to, to Terry Smith. Yeah, uh, that's right. And I mean, it's been a tremendous success story. So yeah, we should we should definitely celebrate that. So thanks very much for all that, Dan. Uh, something a little bit, little bit less pleasant now, pension scams back in the news. Parliament looking at this area, how it can stop scammers. Rachel, you're going to explain it all to us. How, 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 have, they, how have we got to this point? Why have, why have pension scams basically raised their ugly heads again? Um, because they're still a problem um, and because they're still going on. Um, we got some uh, figures from Action Fraud recently that said uh, £30.9 million has been lost in pension scams since 2017. And this is probably on the low side. It's, um, pension scams tend to be lowly reported because sometimes people just don't realize for a few months or even years that they have been scammed out of their pension investment. They think um, the person who has scammed them is just looking after the money and they're telling them don't worry about it. And then they realize maybe a little bit too late that the, their pension investment has gone. And sometimes people are, are embarrassed about reporting it as well. Um, and the worry is that the current situation um, with the financial um, uncertainty ahead of us that we're, we're going to see a lot more of these and there's going to be a lot more scams coming um, coming out and a lot more people losing their pension money. Um, we did some research on this at AJ Bell and we found that 37% um, of people have been targeted um, by fraud or scammers um, but when you're looking at the 55 year old to 64 year old category the older people that rose to 
45% of people have been targeted. So it's really quite a high number. And obviously the attraction is that by the time you get to 55 to 64, you've built up a really good pension fund. So big pot of money there, big pot of money, and you can get hold of it. You can go to your pension provider and say, I would like to withdraw all of this money. And it's, it's easy to do. So the scammers can help you do that, help you take out the money, and then they can um, entice you to invest it in wherever in the investments which aren't which unfortunately don't actually exist so um, yeah. the work pensions committee is, is looking at this and we were invited to give evidence to them a couple of weeks ago um, to this group of MPs who were looking at it just to um, to help them with their inquiry to see how they can take this forward well, what are they actually thinking about doing? Have they got any plans or, you know, what is the industry doing about it? Well, there's, there's lots of initiatives going on. Um, there was um, a few years ago, the emphasis was probably on trying to entice people to transfer from one place to another um, and to transfer their pension from one place to another and then the scammers could get hold of it. But we're finding that's, that avenue is really, in our experience, is, is being reduced quite a lot and that's because the revenue is taking better action to make sure that only bona fide schemes are, are registered and they're helping out more with information about suspicious schemes and there's more due diligence within the industry just to look at transfers going through so we're finding that that avenue is is not closed off but is is definitely reducing which is positive but scammers are are evolving um, and the scams that they are, are using are evolving as well. And we're finding that there's, there's various initiatives out there by various people, including the Work and Pensions Committee, but also the regulators like um, uh, the Pensions Regulator and the FCA, and also the Pension Scams Industry Group. So there's lots of bodies looking at this particular issue. And so hopefully they can work together to, to try and bring out some really meaningful um, changes. One thing is we, we had um, a ban come in a few years ago, only a couple of years ago, to stop cold calling. So someone ringing you up and saying, would you like a pensions review? Can I help you with a pensions review? And you've never heard of this person before in your life and you've no, no contact with them. And that ban was brought in, but it's not maybe enough. We need to really extend it beyond pension reviews to maybe investment reviews and also look at things like social media or emails and, and something like that. We need to go wider to try and stop these scammers. Yeah, I what? think that's, um, sorry, Deng. I, I was just going to say, I think it's quite interesting. That obviously, kind of, you've got this kind of waterbed effect where you kind of push down on a problem in one one place and it kind of pops up in another. So you kind of have to, you have to kind of cover all bases. Yeah, I mean, as I said, that this is big money we're talking about. Um, you know, by the time you get to 55, you, you have a big pension pot. And it's a really attractive way, um, you know, it's a really attractive thing for a scammer to look, look at. And if you are over 55 you can just get the money out and it is quite an easy process maybe for them to entice you to invest in something so what what, what should perhaps our listeners be aware of are there some um similarities between the the methods that scammers use 
Well, they're very clever. Scammers are very clever. And we're finding that these scams are, as we've just said, they're evolving and they're changing. Um, I came across a, a case um, recently where somebody who was um, 50, I think they were over 55 and they, they, they were you know, maybe in their 60s and they were looking to invest their retirement money. And they were approached by someone who was offering them um, an investment. And the, the scammers were impersonating a very reputable company who you will know the name of, very highly recognizable, highly reputed, um, highly recognized company. And they were offering them, um, I think it was something like a fixed interest ISA bond. And it was offering 4.5% uh, a year over five years. Now, to me, that doesn't sound that outlandish. You know, you're thinking it's got a, a reputable company attached to it. It sounds bona fide. They sent them um, a brochure, which was a 20 page glossy brochure on this wonderful investment with all the branding of the company. And when the person investigated a little bit further, they, they spoke to their advisors, investigated a little bit further. They found out that the, there was no such investment and this was just merely a clone company who had set this up. So it, it just shows you how clever they can be and how easy it is to, to fall for some of these scams. And I think if we're in the current environment at the moment and there's so many financial uncertainties and it's so likely, I think, that the number of scams is going to go up, then we just need to be vigilant. So people who are listening, I would probably say, you know, to be aware if someone gets in touch with you who you um, you don't know the person and it's unexpected call. Um, just be wary of anybody who's offering a really high return um, because, you know, as they say, if it looks too good to be true, it's probably not true. Um, or if someone's offering you a loan or a cashback from your pension or offering you the ability to get hold of your pension funds before the age of 55, or there's a time pressure element involved. For example, they say you've really got to act now You've really got to do something now before um, this this deal disappears. But what we found with this is, um, and our experience in AJ Bell, is that people sometimes are just so desperate to to get hold of any money. They they need this money, and it's just very very sad that they that they um, are, are working and that they that they fall for these scams who say, I can get hold of this pension for money for you. It's just sat there. It's not doing anything. How about I help you access that money and we can get a good return on it and you can get rid of all of your financial problems. And it's so easy to see why people are enticed and attracted by this. Yeah, and I, I guess it must be very really galling if you do fall for one of these scams, you've saved up all your life and then your pension is gone. Um, yeah, pretty. Absolutely. Um, and it can, it can be worse than that in a way um, you can, it, depending on how you take the money out of your pension, you could even be faced with charges from um, tax charges from the, the revenue who might ask for a, a tax charge as well because you have taken your money out of your pension before age 55 and before the time you were supposed to take your money out of your pension or in an unauthorized way. Um, so it's even, it's like a double whammy for some people who have not only seen the whole life savings disappear in front of their eyes, which as you say is so distressing, but also are faced then with an additional tax charge. And these people were probably in the financial situation to start off with where they were desperate just to try and do anything to raise a bit of cash. 
yeah so so worth being vigilant and some some good advice there i think for everyone to to try and keep safe and keep their pensions safe um so moving on to murray income trust and perpetual income and growth trust two two of the biggest names uh, in the investment trust world they've proposed a 1 billion pound merger it's about to go to a shareholder vote uh, the two trusts are quite different products. So we were curious to find out exactly why they're coming together. So Dan met up with the chairman of the Murray Trust, uh, Neil Rogan, just to discuss the proposal, what Perpetual's options were after the previous manager, Mark Barnett, um, left, and what, what investors should expect if the shareholders do vote in favour of the deal. So let's listen to that interview now. So Perpetual Income Trust is merging with Murray Income Trust following a period of underperformance. So, Neil, why didn't Perpetual just appoint a new manager rather than going down the merger route? The, yes, a good question. They, they could have done, and they, they did consider that. Uh, it's, it's entirely a decision for the Perpetual Income and Growth Trust board. Uh, but as I understand it, they uh, they came up with a shortlist of uh, alternative managers and uh, also one or two other investment trust companies like us uh, to consider a merger. Uh, we, for, for our part, um, we thought it was unlikely that we would we would get through to the end because usually investment trusts choose, just choose another manager. But we, uh, we got through the long list, we got into the short list, we got asked to present and uh, I think in, in the end uh, we we were able to offer them a, a very good manager at a, at a much cheaper price than they would have found if they'd gone and appointed managed directly. Yeah so what, what, what difference would it make to, to Murray? Is it principally that um, investors should be able to expect lower management fees? Yes, it, when it, it's it's when that benefit goes to both sets of shareholders. For for obviously, my job is to 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 look after Murray Income Trust shareholders, and for for those shareholders, the the management fee for the trust is going to fall from uh, a blended zero point four eight percent to zero point three eight percent, so a, a ten basis point reduction in management fees, which is recurring. You know that that would be every every single year. Uh, likewise on ongoing charges, because most of the ongoing charges apart from the management fee are fixed. So the the ongoing charges for Murray Income shareholders fall from 64 basis points down to 50. And it, it, it's very rare that we as directors can can have a, a fee cut as big as that in, in one year. So that's a, a big advantage. For um, the perpetual income growth shareholders, they were paying uh, a 60 basis point management fee before this happened. Uh, so they go from 60 to 38. So fee, lower fees are a, a big advantage of this, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just quite curious about how um, an investment trust merger actually happens. I mean, do, do, do you tend to find that there's um, sort of competition from other, other trusts also hoping to do the same thing as, as you've managed to do? Um, or, or is it perhaps in this situation, you were the only one um, who actually wanted to do a merger. It was other people just looking to do the, the sort of the, just take over as a, as a management basis. No, we weren't the only one. I actually don't know how many others uh, put their uh, their hats into the ring, so to speak. But um, uh, there was certainly some competition from other investment trusts. Uh, there would have been even more competition from managers wishing to take on the trust 
who um, uh, were not proposing to to merge it. So it, it was a very competitive tender. It was uh, Winter Floods, who were the perpetual income growth broker, uh, ran it alongside Mercer's, and uh, Mercer's as a you know very uh, high reputation consultant. They do a lot of this work. And it's very, very difficult to win a Mercer's Beauty Parade. You know, I know from my own experience running many uh, for 30 years prior to, to doing this job. So uh, it, it's quite a big thing, you know, to get uh, to get to the end and to to win is uh, it was it was great. I think I described it as being thrilling when I wrote the, the first report because it was thrilling. it was quite exciting, uh, a little bit scary, but we were very pleased with it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Murray manager, Charles Luke, already well versed with taking on new challenges because he, he sort of assumed management of the former Woodford Income Focus Fund um, alongside Murray. I'm just wondering whether that experience of um, showing that he's able to take on uh, another trust would have sort of played to your strengths when you're trying to, to obviously win this merger. Um Sort of yeah, maybe at the margin, but I don't, I don't think that was a, a major thing this time because the uh, what he's taking on is uh, is a portfolio that will be a replica of uh, of Murray Income because the the perpetual income growth uh, uh, portfolio, the idea is that it's repositioned uh, so that uh, by the time the merger actually happens. It will the bit that's coming over will be a replica of what we already have. So, so Charlie, when he takes it on, he's not doing anything different. He's just managing. He's got the same percentage weightings in the same companies, but just with a bigger size overall of overall fund. Yeah. So, I'm right in saying that Murray has actually changed its own style um, about four years ago after a period of underperformance. Um, I, I was just I seem to recall something happened. If, if that's true, was there sort of any talk about potentially switching to a new manager at that point? The No, no, there was no talk of uh, a manager switch. The, the, you're right, something changed, but it's, it's probably not what you're thinking. The, um, the, the you know, Charlie and the Aberdeen investment style is, is famously slow moving, you know, it hardly ever changes. So they, they've been doing the same thing for a long, long time. And you know, they, in a word, they would call it quality investing. They invest in what they call quality companies, and that wasn't working. That 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 had gone through a, a rough three or four years where it underperformed as a style, an investment style, but it suddenly started to work about uh, three to four years ago, and uh, the um, you know having that style tailwind behind them is one of the reasons. That they have performed so well in the last, you know, one, two, three, four, five years. The um, the the there was one uh, slight change in their uh, investment approach, uh, something that we picked up as a board. They they strengthened their sell discipline process. One of the things they they were, I think, they would admit to it as well. They were a little bit guilty of hanging on to shares, uh, hanging on to companies for too long after they started to get into trouble. And uh, the uh, by tightening up the process where they address uh, companies like this much earlier and sell them much quicker than they used to, they've uh, they've avoided uh, the big mistakes in the portfolio for the last probably for the la last three years or so. And uh, you know it's like like any it's like any sport. If you eliminate the mistakes, the overall results get better fairly quickly. Yeah, so uh, Murray's investment style is definitely different to to how Perpetual used to be run 
under its former manager, Mark Barnett, he, he was much more of a value person, wasn't he? So I would imagine um, that we're not going to see any stocks that used to be in Perpetual's portfolio appearing in the, in the Murray one. Um, is it, do you think that's correct? Or actually, is there anything that will, there will be some commonality? The, there, there are some. You're, you're right that the two styles are very different. The value is, is very different to quality. Uh, but the, um, uh, we think at the moment that there will be 11 stocks uh, that Charlie will keep uh, from the existing portfolio. And uh, these are stocks like um, National Grid or Rio Tinto, Roche, SSE, which you could argue that they could fall into both camps. They could, they could be value stocks, they could be quality stocks. Um, there's no reason why one can't be in the other camp, but obviously some, some companies wouldn't be in both camps. Um, so it's 11 stocks, which is about 20% of the portfolio uh, that, that will, will be in common. Uh, the, uh, the small caps uh, are not coming over. They'll, they'll be sold before the, the merger happens. Uh, there are some unquoted, which tend to be in, in, the, in these uh, Invesco portfolios that are actually going to, in the liquidation pool, they go to the liquidator rather than come over to, to Murray Income. But the, the, what we'd be very clear on as a board is that the, 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 the only stocks that come over to Murray Income are the ones that Charlie wants. Yeah. So I, I, I imagine, you know, there's lots of perpetual shareholders will certainly be hoping for a better performance than they've had. Um, but, you know, with a different style though, I wondered, you know, they, they were in that um, trust because they like the value style. Um, but do you, do you expect them to sort of move over um, ready for, you know, give, give yourselves a, a chance to prove yourselves? But I was wondering if you've had any sort of feedback from shareholders who've um, sort of got any concerns about, how things might change from what they were used to. Yeah, we've had some feedback, not, not an awful lot so far, but the uh, uh, it, it's been positive what we've had so far. There's, I suppose there's a little bit of uh, bit of relief. Uh, the uh, They seem to be pleased that their board have addressed the issues and, uh, uh, and done something about it. Uh, the, um, uh, the, you know, the response to uh, putting uh, Charlie in as, as their investment manager is uh, is universally positive at the moment. So, the, you know, I'll you know I'll meet a lot of these shareholders in, in due course, and uh, hopefully that will uh, that will continue. Yeah. Well, Neil, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Brilliant to talk to you. Okay, pleasure. Thanks, Tim. Right. Well, thanks a lot for tuning into this week's episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to leave a review, then please do. As ever, email any comments or suggestions uh, for future topics through to podcast uh, at ajbell.co.uk. Thanks very much and see you again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.